0: Luke chapter 12, verses 13 through 21, we're going to continue our series on the parables in Luke's gospel, and I'll start off with a news article, because we all love the news, right? If you're new, I don't preach from news articles, um, but I think that this is an interesting one, and it's uh, an interesting opening illustration to where the text is going to take us today. Uh, This is actually a, a Reuters news article from several years ago, and it was entitled, The Last Taboo why nobody talks about money. It says this, everyone knows that there are a few hot button topics that can make any conversation go nuclear. All right, what are they? Religion, health, politics, death. But when it comes to the most difficult conversation you can possibly have, a new survey from the Wells Fargo company found one clear winner, money. In fact, According to this survey, 44% of Americans point to personal finances as the most challenging chat anyone can possibly have. Even the existentially terrifying topic of death, which you might expect to top the survey, comes in second at 38%. We can talk about death and you dying, or we can talk about your personal finances. Pick one. Most people would pick death. It says, also far behind are the perennially explosive topics like politics at 35%, religion at 32%. So we're safe, you can talk to your coworkers about religion. There's at least a couple of other things that'll tick them off even more. So it says, this, what exactly is going on here in a society that is ostensibly one of the wealthiest in the world? Why is everyone so frightened to talk about such a basic subject? A quote. It is such a loaded conversation, and there is so much subtext and hidden meaning wrapped up in money, says Daniel Crosby, a behavioral finance expert from Huntsville, Alabama. Money, here's what he says, money is shorthand for happiness, power, and personal effectiveness. So it can be very scary. When money is short, it can be seen as a deficiency, and when there's a lot of money, there can be fears that greed takes the place of genuine love. Whatever the reason for avoiding the subject, money mistakes, embarrassment, or fears of conflict, silence is no long-term solution. It's it really interesting that a secular news outlet would call money the last taboo, the thing that nobody wants to talk about. So you know what we're going to do today? We're talking about money. And if you're new here today, maybe you know that, um, that other stereotype or taboo about churches. that Like, they only want my money. They're only here for my money. They're going to ask for my money. I'm not going to ask for your money today. Put your wallet away. Put your bank account app away. Don't freak out. I'm not here to ask about money at all. This isn't about me talking about money. This is Jesus talking about money. Culture might be afraid to talk about money. You know who's not afraid to talk about money? Jesus. As a matter of fact, how many of you have heard like that Jesus talks about money more than any other topic in the gospel? Has anybody ever heard that before? I've heard people say that. Actually, one time I said it myself. It's not completely true. It's not like 100% factual. Jesus does use money as an illustration very frequently. And he also talks frequently about money. Do you know why he does that? There's a real simple reason why There's a phrase It's actually in Luke chapter 12 A little bit later in the chapter I think it's about verse 33 And it, uh, he also says it in the Sermon on the Mount In Matthew 6 and The phrase is this Maybe you've heard it Where your treasure is There will your heart be also That's why Jesus talks so much about money That's why although money is such a taboo issue And to talk to people about like their personal finances And get like personal with regard to money Why well, Jesus is willing to talk about it now, I, as a pastor, find this interesting because if you come to our annual business meeting each year, you know what they do? Some of you haven't been to one before. They have the audacity to take my annual salary and post it on that screen right there for everyone to see. Like, they really do that? They actually do that, right? They post my annual salary. They post Lauren's annual salary, Pastor Lauren. Here's what they make. Feel sorry for them. Or here's what they make. Be jealous of them. Like, you know, wherever you're at, right? I'm going to feel bad about that because it's taboo. We do it for safety reasons and security reasons and all that good stuff, and that's beside the point. It's funny. But the truth is that it is taboo. Like if I come to you and start talking about your net worth and stuff like that, it's going to get weird, isn't it? Right? We don't like sit down with each other and have conversations about our, our net worth and how much you got in the bank and where, what are your stock options looking like. Jesus talks about these things because where your treasure is there, your heart will be also. Jesus doesn't talk about money because he needs your money. Jesus doesn't talk about money for any other reason than the fact that our possessions are an indicator of our heart. The way that we pursue possessions, the way that we look at money, the way we uh, our view on savings and retiring and investing and all of those things are a good indicator as to some of the things that are going on in our heart. Whenever Jesus talks about money, it's not really ultimately about money. It's always about our heart. And in this parable today, Jesus is going to use this story as a lens to look into people's hearts as it relates to their relationship with him. So let's read it together. Luke chapter 12, starting in verse 13. If you have your Bibles, if you don't, there should be one right in front of you there. Luke chapter 12, verse 13. Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But he said to him, Man, who made me a judge or arbiter over you? And he said to them, take care, be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And then he told them a parable, saying, the land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, what shall I do, for I have nowhere to store my crops? And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones and there I will store all my grain and my goods, and I will say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years, relax, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, Fool. In case you're wondering, that's never good. God says fool. This night your soul is required of you, and the things you have prepared, those whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself. And is not rich toward God. This story is going to show us an indicator of our hearts by looking at our money. I'm going to pray for us that God would give us ears to hear what he has for us to hear today. And then we'll dig into it. Father, we're again thankful for your word. And thankful for the way that you, um, through your Holy Spirit, have inspired these words. Um, and that as Jesus taught these words and then as Luke recorded them for us that we have a view into our hearts through this very real and tangible area in our lives and God I pray that our hearts would be open to hear your words and Holy Spirit as you challenge and convict I pray that we would be open to hear and change in uh, in accordance with what you have for us this morning Look at verses 13 through 15 to start out, because that's kind of like the scenario before the parable gets told. This is kind of the setup, and I told you last week that every story that Jesus tells is a response to some situation that's going on like right there in the text. And so we see someone in the crowd said to him, teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. There's a large crowd that's following Jesus, a variety of people in that crowd. Religious people, irreligious people, people who aren't sure where they stand on the whole issue at all. A lot of different people. It might be a lot like today, as a matter of fact, right? There's a large group of people, and one of them s- stands up and says, "Ask Jesus to do something. They say, Jesus, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Now, to you, that might sound weird. Like, if one of you stood up right now and was like, Pastor Steve, tell my wife what I want for lunch... Like that's not going to work. Right? I'm just going to ignore you. We're going to keep moving along. In this instance, this was not abnormal because this is what rabbis did and teachers of the law, people who understood the law, and they would be teaching in a in a context in a crowd and it wasn't abnormal for someone and it had a break in a conversation to say rabbi, like you know the law, you understand God's law, help me enforce that. And they're asking Jesus to be the arbiter between two of them. When he says, ask my brother to divide the inheritance with me, likely this is a younger brother asking Jesus to arbitrate between him and his older brother. And the older brother seemingly didn't want to divide the inheritance. And if you know uh, much about um, Middle Eastern culture in that day, land was a big deal, uh, inheritance was a big deal, possessions were a big deal. And typically the, older, the oldest sibling got a double share of the inheritance. By the way, that wasn't just so that they could run and have fun with it. That was because they were ultimately responsible for the welfare and well-being of the family. Not just their nuclear family, but the whole extended family. And what happened is when younger siblings started saying, Hey, give me mine, and hey, give me mine, and hey, give me mine, and, hey, me mine, and divide this thing up. If all of your wealth was in land and it all got divided up, that was weakening your family status. Uh, what we can see just in this request is that, this, that there's a, some sort of a relationship rift between these Two family members and this person is asking Jesus to arbitrate between them so that he can get what is his we can surmise from that that this person who's asking the question has his own personal financial future in his mind he's thinking about himself and his own financial security his own wealth and his own wealth assessment getting what is uh, rightfully owed to him but it's very possible that he's not thinking about the greater good that there was a lot more to be lost than just the loss of his part of the inheritance. And there was a lot more to be gained than just him getting his little piece of the share. And that we can surmise from what Jesus says in just a minute that there was more that was driving this man's heart. And that's why verse 15 is important. When Jesus in verse 14 says, man, who made me a judge or an arbiter over you? Jesus is saying, there are bigger things here. There's more important questions to be asked than just give me my piece of what's owed to me. And then he cuts to the heart of the issue in verse 15. He said to them, so Jesus looks at the whole crowd. They've heard this request. They've heard what Jesus said to the man. Jesus says to the whole crowd, take care. Be very careful. Be on your guard. Have your guard up. Be prepared for battle against all covetousness some of your translations say greed covetousness and greed greed and co- covetousness is an exe- excessive and consuming desire for more excessive and consuming desire for more many of the things that I will say today from this parable will sound an awful lot like what we call the American dream right It's so interesting when we preach and teach through Jesus' teachings from 2,000 years ago and how highly applicable they are to our life and our circumstances right now. We live in a highly individualistic and materialistic society. Some of that is brought on by our system of government. Some of that is brought on, uh, most of it, by our own personal willfulness and sinfulness, right? There are really good sides to capitalism, and we love capitalism, and we want to live in a capitalistic culture. But there are also some downsides to that. I won't spend a ton of time getting into that. But one of the downsides can be this individualist materialism that is always expectant and looking for more. I feel like I deserve more. I deserve better always and at all times. Scripture calls that covetousness or greed. As a matter of fact, the fifth, uh, the tenth of the tenth commandments do not covet. It was so important, it made God's top ten list. Yet we think that sometimes that's just part of normal thinking in American life. Jesus says, Be on your guard against all covetousness. And then he says this. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. One's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. There's a few different Greek words that you can use to translate the word life. The one that's used here has to do with eternal, spiritual life. If Jesus was just talking about like his physical life, he would have used the word bios. This is the word zoe, and it has to do with like your spiritual life. Life. So he's talking about more than just like your everyday moving, living, and breathing. He's talking about like your purpose. He's talking about the meaning, what brings meaning to your life. When he says one's life does not consist, it's not all consumed just in the abundance of his possessions. Here's a different way to think about what Jesus is talking about. You have what's called quality of life, okay? We all have some sort of a quality of life. That means you, your ability just like wake up in the morning and not want to just go back to bed. Yeah, I know for some of us, it's tough, right? Your quality of life is your ability to wake up and be happy, to have some level of joy in life, to feel like you've got some kind of purpose, that there's meaning to your existence. Quality of life is just is that. It's like, and, and people who are Christians and non-Christians, it's like people in general experience something called quality of life, meaning general happiness. Then there's something else that's called standard of living, right? Standard of living, how big is my bank account? How new is my car? How nice is my house? How many trips have I been on? What experiences have I had? Standard of living. Neither of these things are inherently bad or wrong. But here's what happens, is that we confuse the two. We think that our standard of living is our quality of life, right? The more stuff that I have, the more experiences that I have, the more things that I do, the bigger that my bank account is, the better my quality of life will be scripture always teaches the converse of that that quality of life is not equal to standard of living how many of you have ever known somebody who has said man you know what i work more and more and more and more all the time and i'm just happier all the time right typically you don't hear people say like the more i work the happier i am and if you do they probably need counseling just throwing it out right but what scripture is always talking about, what Jesus is talking about here, and that, your, that your life does not consist in the abundance of your possessions. Like, if your security and your personal happiness and your identity and all those things are completely wrapped up in your standard of living, you're going to have a bad quality of life. Because even if you have, like, great possessions, you're always going to be worried that they're going away. Who's going to take them? What's going to happen to them? What about the stock market? What about that investment? What's going to happen? What am I going to do? Right? And at the end of the day, Jesus is going to say that we need to pursue, from a spiritual perspective, quality of life, regardless of our standard of living. That you can have very little and have great quality of life. You can have a lot and you can have good quality of life or anywhere in between. But ultimately, from a spiritual perspective, what he's concerned about is our heart, our spiritual quality of living, not our material standard of living. And the story is, that he's going to tell is going to expound on that. Verse 16, it says, And he told them a parable. He's like, He gave them the point. Now he's going to tell them a parable to illustrate this story. And he said this, The land of a rich man produced plentifully. Now when you're reading Bible stories, especially parables, man, you want to look at like, all the little details right? And, and see them because Jesus is a master storyteller and he's putting the details in there on purpose. What kind of a man are we talking about here? Poor man. What kind of a man are we talking about here? A rich man. This man was rich before the parable started. Okay, it's a, it's a story. It's a fic, fictitious man. But at the beginning of the parable, before anything else happens, he's already rich. That means he's not needy he's not destitute he's not even middle class right that whatever's going to happen to him later is not going to be something that he has like great personal need that he needs to hoard this for he's already rich it says the land of a rich man produced plentifully does this say that the rich man got out there with his tractor and his plow and made that land produce plentifully it's all passive isn't it in verse 16 Who gave the increase to this man? God gave the increase to this person. The land of a rich man produced plentifully. This is not the rich man working harder than everybody else or being smarter than everybody else or having a better business plan than everybody else. This is that God blessed someone. And that's very important because of the next verse. Verse 17. He thought to himself, what shall I do? for I have nowhere to store my crops. I don't know about you, but I've read this parable many times. And every time I've read it before I really dug in and studied it, I thought, like, is this guy really that bad? His land produced plentifully. I grew up in farm country, you guys. Like I get it, right? Some years bad corn crop, other years very plentiful corn crop, bumper crop. Like the guy was a farmer, he was rich, he had a bumper crop. And he's like, I need to store all this. Let's tear down these barns and build bigger ones. What's wrong with that? Here's what's wrong with that. Back to the text. And he thought to himself, what shall I do? His first thought revealed his heart's greatest desire. His first thought, what he led with in times of prosperity, revealed his heart's greatest desire. What shall I do? I know I'll build bigger barns to store all my stuff in that society especially as like a more community focused society there were lots of people that could have used his help this is not what he needed to get by on this is not him storing up for a season in a season of plenty because of a season of want later on this is having more than enough for him to live on and the first thing he thought about was not other people The first thing he thought about was himself. And you can tell a lot about your heart by what you lead with in times of plenty. We can tell a lot about our hearts by the first place our thoughts go when God blesses us with extra. You get that extra paycheck. You get that bonus. You get that return on investment. Where does your heart go? Sweet, now I can. What's next? You can tell something about your heart related to that. The rest of Jesus' story is going to bear that out. At this point, a rich man, through no fault or help or whatever of his own, was able to, his his land produced plentifully. And his first thought was, I'm going to store all of this up. Some of us will say, like, he's smart. He's got a savings plan. That's a really good thing. Jesus is going to actually condemn him for that. And we'll see what it teaches us. Now, in verses 17 through 19, I'm going to read through all these verses, and I want you to listen for the words I and my. He thought to himself, what shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones where I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry what this parable is teaching is the difference between ownership and stewardship the I and my over and over and over again shows that this man feels like he's the owner of everything that God has blessed him with rather than the steward of everything that God has blessed him with and there's a distinct and powerful difference if I own it then it's mine I get to do what I want with it it's for me I got it through my own hard work and I got it through my own ingenuity, and look how great I am, and it's mine, and I get to store it and keep it and use it however I want because I own it. Scripture never talks about money in terms of ownership. It always talks about money in terms of stewardship. Stewardship first acknowledges where it came from. God bless me with this. God has given me this. God has given me this for a reason. And it's not my, my own personal relaxation and enjoyment. God has given me this so that I can be a blessing. You've heard that you're blessed to be a blessing. God has blessed me so I can be a blessing to other people, right? Most of us see ourselves as owners rather than stewards of what God has given. And I would say again that ownership is the American way, right? Ownership is the way that we're taught to look at money and finances because you work hard, and you're smart and you're industrious and you save and so it's yours and you own it the scripture teaches a different attitude toward whatever it is that god has given us and the attitude is that of stewardship that it came from god you see the individualism and the aloneness here this is striking to me like where are this guy's friends where is his family where's his community it's one guy it's all aloneness And again, I'm telling this story to 21st century Americans who are used to, like, we live in an individualistic culture. In that culture, it would be even more striking. Because when you had a bumper crop, that affected not only you, but everybody else. And as a man, you would have been one of, probably he would have been one of the elders of the city, would have called the elders of that town, and they together would have made a decision on what to do with this. And, And one of the things that is sad here is that he's doing it all alone. Like he planned alone and prepared alone, he built it all alone, he indulged in it alone, and ultimately we'll see that he died alone, right? There's a Christmas story that's a lot like that, isn't there, right? Scrooge, and nobody wants to be a Scrooge. But that's what you see in this text, is someone who's alone and storing it up all for themselves. Verse 18, then he said this, he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones, and there I will store all my grain and all my goods. I will store all my grains and my goods. This is called a keep mentality versus a give mentality. You realize that there are two different ways that we can go about life. We can have a keep mentality, a save it for me, or a give mentality, generosity we all approach finances in one of those two ways. Most of us, myself included, probably lean more towards like, I worked really hard for this, and I'm going to keep it, <laughs> right? Like, let me have this. This is, this is mine. There's a keep mentality and a give mentality. But here's the tricky thing. Giving is a litmus test for money idols. Giving is a litmus test for money idols. Luke twelve thirty three: Sell your possessions and give to the needy. Oh, really? Is that like communism? Because I'm not real excited about that. (laughs) Right? We'll have another class on that at a different time. I am not advocating communism. Please make sure that gets on the video. Not advocate, no. Right? There's a story in Luke 18 where Jesus, this rich young ruler, comes up to Jesus and he's like, What do I gotta do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus tells him to keep these rules and laws, and he's like, I've done all that. And then Jesus says to him the very these same words, sell your possessions and give to the poor. And, it, and the guy like totally broke down and it was very sad because it says he was exceedingly rich giving is a litmus test for money idols right at the end of the day man I can, I can, I can tell pretty good whether or not I'm making money my idol by how willing I am to give to people to causes, to, to real needs and we are all about giving responsibly here Okay, this is not like just start throwing money at things That's a whole different conversation. But giving is a litmus test for money idols. Like If if you hate the fact that God says you you need to tithe, like if you, like, oh, that's so hard for me, that could be a, a lens into your heart and where you're at in relation to what God has given and blessed you with. Verse 19. I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. You know what we call this, right? You know what we call this? I have ample goods stored up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. What's it called? Retirement. Yes. Yes. Now he's going to attack American retirement. I think retirement's okay. Okay. But I, I like what one, one author, I read this this week. God didn't create us to run hard until we're about 65 and then pop it into neutral and say, this is all about me now. That's me paraphrasing this guy, right? God didn't create us to run hard from the time we're 20 to the time, you know, I can't wait until I'm 65, pop it into neutral, and life is all about me. Yes. Eat, drink, be merry. Woo-hoo. Right? No. You want to work faithfully and work hard and save and invest well so that one day you can quit your day job? Praise Jesus, right? If you don't like your day job, clap with me right now. Woo! Yes, there you go. Pastor said, I can retire. What you can't do is stop serving Jesus, right? You don't get to hit cruise control and be like, all right, I did my time. I'm out now. Y'all take care of it. I'm just going to sit back here and relax. No, that's the part that's not biblical right you want to retire you want to take a cruise you want to take your pastor on a cruise feel free (laughs) amen let's go giving I mean come on I get seasick so we're out on that you want to you know what you want to have a retirement house you want to do that's between you and the Lord right we're not saying don't retire just keep on no but well, what we are talking about is, what is my attitude? Like, if my whole attitude is like, I can't wait until I get to 65 or 68 or whatever, and then I can just hit cruise control, and then life is really going to be about me, and I'm just going to do what I want to do, this says something about my heart, Right? I know people who have retirement homes in other places and use those for ministry in the glory of God. I know people who are retired or semi-retired who give, give, give of their time and their energy here at this church and at other churches and other places. Like, you can be retired and still working hard for the kingdom of God. And what Jesus is saying is that's the place you want to be. Like, that's the most rewarding place. John Piper talks about it. This isn't in my notes, so I don't know if I'll get it right or not. But John T- Piper has a book called Don't Waste Your Life. It's one of his older books, so some of his new stuff is making you scared. This is an old one, so it's fine, right? This says, Don't Waste Your Life. And he talks about the trifling fog that... Th- comes over us as american consumers that makes our whole life just all about us and like the idea he uses the idea of like a retirement community with a golf course and your whole life like your whole retirement is just all about living for you 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 you. and he's like we were created for that we're not going to find any happiness in that like i've been to that right like we had a family friend who had a home in the villages in florida retire amazing retirement community and it was really cool but I was there for like 15 minutes and I was ready to like strangle someone. Most of it was the driving. But, yeah, retired people, driving. But God didn't create us ultimately for that, right? Like ultimately God created us to continue to give and to continue to serve and continue to, to work for him. You don't retire from your Christian life. Retire from work? Great. We don't retire from our Christian life when he's talking about that in verse 19 I will say to my soul you have ample goods laid up for you relax eat drink and be merry you heard that phrase before eat drink and be merry for tomorrow we die right Uh, various cultures throughout human history as a matter of fact have had different versions of that saying I want to you guys want to take a little field trip Bible field trip real quick I want to go to the Old Testament several hundred years before Jesus we're going to go to the book of Ecclesiastes Ooh, that's a dark book. Where are we going there? It's like one of my favorite books in the Old Testament, actually. Ecclesiastes 2. Turn to Ecclesiastes 2. It's almost right in the middle of your Bible. Because this phrase is actually going to show up several times in Ecclesiastes, and it's actually a positive thing. And I want you to, to see that, to see what is happening here. Ecclesiastes chapter 2, verse 24. There is nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in all his toil. If you're not familiar with Ecclesiastes, it was written, at least I believe, that it was written by a guy named Solomon. You've heard of him, right? One of the richest men to ever live, one of the wisest men to ever live. He made some really poor decisions later in life, right? About 699 poor decisions plus 300, right? Scripture said he had 700 wives, 300 concubines. That's a bad number. That's 999, if my math is right, bad decisions, And because of those bad decisions, it led him to a lot of other bad decisions. And this Ecclesiastes is an old man looking back over the course of his life saying, I was rich and I had it all and I tried everything. And let's see how it worked out. And over and over again, he says, meaningless, meaningless. Everything is meaningless, like chasing after the wind. But through Ecclesiastes, there's these little glimmers of hope. This is one of them. Chapter 3, verse 12, is another one. I perceive that there is nothing better for them than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live, also that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all of his toil. This is a gift from God. Chapter 3, verse 22, I saw that there is nothing better than that a man should rejoice in his work, for that is his lot. Chapter 5, verse 18, Behold, what I have seen to be good and fitting is to eat and drink and find enjoyment in all the toil, with which one toils under the sun the few days of his life that God has given him, for that is his lot. Chapter 8, verse 15, I commend joy, for man has nothing better under the sun but to eat and to drink and to be joyful. Chapter 9, verse 7, go, eat your bread with joy, drink your wine, uh, your, your grape juice, with a merry heart, for God has already approved what you do. Over and over and over again, he comes back and he says, you know what? Like, just live your life. Enjoy what God has given you to enjoy. God has given you little, be blessed a little. God has given you a lot, he's given you that for a reason, and enjoy it. But enjoy what God has given you to enjoy. But in chapter 12 of Ecclesiastes, verse 13, is the final conclusion. The only way that you can do what we just read is through this. The end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God, keep his commandments. This is the whole duty of man. At the end of the day, I can eat and I can drink and I can find enjoyment and I can live my life and I can take whatever it is that God has given me and I can be generous with it rather than hoarding it. I can be generous with it because I live my life in the fear of God and in keeping his commandments. That's living in relationship with God. That's quality of life rather than pursuing standard of living. Some people call this the formula for the good life, right? What this man in in Luke chapter 12, verse 19, just described, is what we call the American dream. It's what we call the formula for the good life. You have ample goods laid up for many years. Your, Your stock options performed really well. You have no financial worries. You can do whatever it is that you want. You're going to be completely fine long term. You're safe. You're secure. All the things that you worried about over the course of 30 or 40 or 50 years in working, now you're fine and you can retire. Eat, drink, and be merry. That's the American dream. That's the formula for the good life. But God said to him, verse 20, he say well done good and faithful servant <laughs> no he's got a different word <laughs> god said fool this night your soul is required of you <sighs> this night your soul is required of you you see this man had prepared for his future but he had failed to prepare for his ultimate future he prepared for his future but he failed to prepare and plan for eternity He thought he had the good life all lined out. He just forgot that this life is never going to be the good life. This life was never designed. If this is the best it gets, right? Like if this is the best that it gets, no matter how good you have it, if this is the best that it gets, no thanks. And he had planned for for this future, but he had failed to plan for the important future. This night, your soul is required of you. The things that you have prepared, then whose will they be? See the irony in that? Possessions had been given, possessions had been hoarded, they had been used selfishly, and then they were left behind. Like, that's the story of so many investors today so many people who are pursuing the good life and pursuing the american dream like crazy tonight your soul this very night your soul is required of you you're going to be called to account the tragedy in this story is that this guy planned and prepared and pursued and he got exactly what he planned and prepared and pursued he got exactly what he was looking for unfortunately He planned and prepared and pursued the wrong stuff, the wrong thing. I don't know about you, I don't want to be that guy. I don't want to put all my time and energy and effort into that. At the same time, my wife and I this past week said, "You know what? I've got three daughters. That means three weddings." My buddy Emmanuel is here this week, uh, this morning for the early service. He's got seven daughters, and they're Latino, so he's got seven quinceañeras, and then seven weddings. I prayed for him. <laughs> so I got no money to give you, but, <laughs> no, but we we got talking about we got th- like three weddings that we'll have to prepare for. We got college for three kids. One of them is like 16, and now we're like starting to talk about college. So we started to talk about things like you know, like you got to have your financial ducks in a row. That's really important. I think one of the things that people think is this. There's and I heard this before. This isn't like from me I didn't make this up but there's a few different kind of people with relation to money you have we'll just there's like four categories right you've got like righteous rich people you have righteous poor people you have unrighteous rich people and unrighteous poor people if you don't like poor we'll just call them middle class that's fair right but the righteous rich are those who have worked hard, invested well, been smart, and God has blessed them for his own reasons and his own purposes. And he, they, they have received their money um, with righteous, by righteous means. But then they also have a mentality that we've been talking about today, of giving, of sharing, of serving, of seeing money as a gift to bless other people rather than a God to be worshipped by uh, them and to use other people in that way. That, those are the people who are the righteous rich. You can also be a righteous poor middle-class righteous poor person by not being covetous by being thankful for what god has given you by being wise and and budgeting well and, and investing what god has given you to invest in whatever ways that that makes sense for you and then using whatever god has given you there to bless other people it's really all about attitude but you can also be unrighteous rich which is what this guy is right It's mine, give it to me, I own it, I'm keeping it. A keep mentality versus a give mentality, all of those things. And you can be unrighteous, poor. You're always the victim. You're always complaining about what everybody else has and what you don't have. You're upset at God because he hasn't given you things. You're always looking to the government or somebody else to bail you out and give you a handout. That is an unrighteous, poor person. What God has called us to is to be righteous, God decides if I'm rich or if I'm poor or anywhere in in between. God has called me to be righteous and not unrighteous. He's called each of us to be righteous and not unrighteous with regard to what he's given us. At the end of the day, that's what stewardship looks like. In verse 20, before we finish up, get to the last verse, I think that the most important thing here is the understanding of this perspective on eternity, Right? I think that an improper perspective on money is usually the result of an improper perspective on eternity. Man, if I think that this is it, and I think that the here and the now is all there is to it, of course I want to keep. Of course I want to get everything that I can. Of course I want to serve myself with my money. But when I really start to dig into eternity and I start to really realize what eternity is about, then I get a proper perspective on money. There's a guy called Randy Alcorn, has some really good writings on like money and eternity. He has a ministry called Eternal Perspectives Ministry. And his whole job, his whole ministry, is about helping people see money and other things in light of eternity. And I think that's where we miss it as Christians because, again, we live in a society that doesn't have eternal perspective, and we're trying to keep up with them. And so then it's always about the here and the now and the present. As opposed to having an eternal perspective Verse 21 As Jesus has ended the parable He kind of gives the end result The conclusion He says So is the one who lays up treasure for himself And is not rich toward God You can be rich toward yourself Or you can be rich toward God To be rich toward God Means to be spiritually productive With our possessions and be spiritually productive with our possessions. And I want to, again, I want to be really clear that, that Jesus isn't against any like social or any material um, status. Jesus isn't against rich people or poor people. There's actually a really cool study. If you go to Luke 18, not right now, but at a different time, and look at the rich young ruler, and then in Luke 19, the very next chapter, Zacchaeus, who was also a rich man, those are two different perspectives on money. Jesus isn't against rich people. He's not against poor people. There's pro- prosperity theology. There's poverty theology. They're both bad theologies, right? But at the end of the day, he's, again, about attitude. So I don't want this to come across like the pastor said don't invest or don't save. Or we, No, we should be wise in all of those things. But what is our attitude toward each of those things? Verse 21 says, so is the one who lays up treasure for himself. And that's actually a, a um, connector to all those next verses, 22 through 34. And i got like 10 minutes left, so let's just do all those two, right? No, I'm just kidding. I see the yawns. It's all good. But I do want you to look at verse 34, because the way that I want to end is what I started with. That little phrase, verse 34, where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Here's the point of this parable on the screen behind me. The location of our treasure reveals the condition of our heart. If the things I value most are here, in my bank account, in my driveway, in my yard, if the things I value most are still at the store, or still at the car dealership, or still at the boat dealership, or still at the bank, or, if the things that I value most are here, shows me something about my heart. The location of my treasure reveals the condition of my heart. And to close, I want you to think about it like this. Uh, I read, this is a, really is a, a good book, but I just like the title of the book. I, I read it several years ago. The book is called Money, God, or Gift. And just the title says something, right? Is money my God? I will use people to make money. I will serve money i will do everything that i can to accumulate money and keep money and hoard money and possessions and experiences and all of those things is money my god or is money my gift and whether i have a lot or i have a little i see it as something that god has given me so that i can steward well to care for other people to care for my family to care for the ministry of the lord and other things Is money my God? Is money my gift? And that's the question I think that we all have to to wrestle with. Ultimately, this is a gospel issue because true generosity is compelled by the gospel of Jesus. In other words, John 3, 16, For God so loved the world that he what? That he hoarded? That he kept? No. God had a give mentality. And if you're a Christian today, you're a Christian because God had a give, not a keep mentality. The gospel connection is that my generosity with my money is really only real generosity if my heart has been changed by the generosity of God through Jesus Christ. That God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. Like if you're not a Christian, generosity starts with accepting the generosity of God in his son Jesus Christ and then living out a thankfulness for that generosity throughout all of the stuff that we do in our lives as well is money my god is money my gift let me pray and then we'll give you a couple of announcements on the way out father again thank you for your word thank you that you are uh never shy in talking about the things that we need to hear about and we thank you that there are real tangible ways that we can look into our own hearts and god that money is just one of those ways um I know it's taboo. I know it's it's not fun to talk about. Uh, God, I just pray that you would give each of us the courage that we need to take a look at this particular area in life and what it teaches us about our hearts and that you would convict us as we need to. Maybe there are people here who are being really generous and they just need to be encouraged in that generosity. Maybe there are some of us who are struggling financially, like we don't even know if we have enough to pay the bills, so how am I supposed to be generous with other people? And God, you would encourage those people as well that whatever is given is given from you. That um, We would just continue to cultivate that attitude of, of thankfulness and gratefulness and generosity. Um, so God, continue to, to challenge our hearts in Jesus' name. Amen.